The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The handout that's coming around is last week's handout all filled in, plus this week's unfilled in handout. But it's not a blank piece of paper. Most who open up their Bibles and read Genesis 1 only look at the text to ask themselves, how did everything get started? How old's the earth? How did it all come about? They're asking science questions. They're asking history questions. But I don't think that's what the original audience of Genesis 1 would have been asking, and I want us to ask the questions that they were asking today. The original audience of Genesis 1, think about it, Genesis 1 is in a book that includes the fall. That means that whoever got Genesis 1 first, remember, Adam and Eve weren't even there to watch it. There was nobody there to watch it as God unfolded things. So this is special revelation. However we understand it, it's special revelation. And Genesis 1 is given to a people who are struggling with sin. Now if Moses was the author of Genesis 1, I think he's the author of Genesis, but he had sources. He's talking to a people who know about death. They're walking around in a wilderness for 40 years, waiting on God to move and then following God. And what are they seeing? The region of southern Israel, where Israel was for 40 years, is no bigger than Minneapolis down to the border of Iowa. It's a very small piece of land, and they're in the same spot. The numbers in numbers suggest there was 700,000 male warriors, 20 and up. So we can double that with the women and then add lots of kids under 20. So we're talking about a company of people that is 1,500,000 adults plus all the children, a very large group. And they're waiting and they're following. 38 years from Kadesh Barnea when Israel sent the 12 spies in, 38 years to the time when the last person died. And the glory cloud would raise and then they would move. Oh yeah, right there is where I buried my uncle five years ago. I wonder if God's going to lead us past my parents' grave. How about my grandparents' grave? When are we going to get out of here? Not till everyone is dead. Why? Because of sin. Sin is real and God takes it seriously. And those who are reading Genesis 1 aren't thinking just about origins or about history. They're wondering, how am I going to live and not die when death is around me? Israel is a walking mortuary for 40 years. If, as Moses says in Psalm 90, the average age of Israel was between 70 and maybe 80 years, 
And it's everyone 20 years and upward that's going to die within 38 years. That means everyone 37 years down to 20 would not have been expected to die within that 38-year period. Yet they all do. Which means that in that 40 years, Israel's death rate would have escalated massively. And so you would have seen your older brother, your uncle, not just those that are a generation older than you, die. All because of sin. And when Israel opens up the Bible, they're wondering, who is God? Who are we supposed to be? Where are we? What's the point of all this journey in life? What's wrong with this world? What are we supposed to value? Is there any solution? Those are the questions I want to approach Genesis 1 with. And I think that if we do, if we approach Genesis 1 with those kinds of questions we may read this text in a way we've never read it before. I consider Genesis 1 to be the most foundational, worldview-shaping text, pardon me, (laughs) in all the Bible. It's not just telling us the beginning. Let's see how I can do. Yes. Because the story that includes Jesus doesn't actually begin until Genesis 2.4. In Genesis 2.4, Adam and Eve are not created yet. And the narrative, the true story of Israel, of God's people, of God's purposes begins in Genesis 2.4. And it's going to carry all the way to the end of Kings. When Israel gets sent into exile, it's going to pick up again in the book of Daniel and it's going to run all the way through to the end of Chronicles and then it's going to pick up with Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham and carry us all the way to the end of Revelation. That story begins in Genesis 2.4. But in Genesis 1.1-2.3, through 2, 3, we've got this text that's hanging out front, an introduction to all of Scripture. that isn't just telling us how things began, I'm going to argue it's giving us a lens for understanding how things should be and answering the big questions of life that every person has an answer to and we want to know how the Bible answers them. Who is God? Who are we? Where are we? What are we to value? What exactly is wrong with this world? And what is the solution? I want to approach this from three angles. We're going to ask, what does this text tell us about God? What does it tell us about humanity? And what does it tell us about the earth? And as we do... The question of who or what governs reality is going to be answered. The question of who are we is going to be answered. The question of where are we is going to be answered. And then we're going to see that Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 also defines, as we live in this world, what we are to value. 
It implies what's wrong with the world, and it even points ahead to the solution. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. So open up your Bibles with me. Let's see how you can do. Make sure you have this week's sheet in front of you. This week's sheet, which is more white space. Have it down so you can't see through it. Let's walk through the seven stages of God's kingdom building plan. K. Kickoff and rebellion, creation, fall, flood. I. Instrument of blessing, the patriarchs, through you, I'm going to fix the world's problem. Pastor John focused on that this morning. N. Nation redeemed and commissioned. God sets apart one people through whom he's going to fix all the world's problem. Exodus, Sinai, and wilderness wanderings. G. Government in the land. God moves Israel into their own context. Like Israel, like Adam had his own promised land called the Garden of Eden through which he was supposed to declare the greatness of God. Israel has their own promised land. God plants them there. It's the period of conquest and kingdoms. So government in the promised land, but the kingdoms go awry and God ends up doing what? D. Dispersion and return. God disperses them, the exile, and then curse is never his final word, initial restoration comes. Dispersion and return. And they come back to the land, but it's not all that they had hoped it would be. And God tells them, keep hoping, keep looking. My kingdom purposes are still at work and you're a part of them. Oh, Overlap of the ages. Jesus comes, Christ's work and the church age. Here we live between the the tension of old and new. The old age in Adam and the new age in Christ. And they've come and they've overlapped so that we are still part of this broken world and yet we are truly part of the next. And one day the broken world will come to an end. And in that day, M, mission accomplished. Christ will return and he will establish his kingdom definitively. All right. We begin. Genesis 1. Have your Bible open. God is the source, sustainer, and goal of all things. In the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, while the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, God said, let there be. And it was. There is heavens and earth, that's everything that we know of in space and in time, visible and invisible, all of it coming forth from one being, God. In the beginning, He created it all. Colossians puts it this way with respect to Christ, who is the Word, the very image of God. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Invisible. Not just visible. 
the very things that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against those things. Things we call evil. The very things which in the very next chapter of Colossians we're told Jesus conquered them at the cross. They were created by Jesus. Through Jesus. In order that in the end they might show that Jesus has first place over all things. That's a big God. What it means is that there is no polytheism allowed in a worldview. Genesis 1 will not let us live in a world where there are many ultimate beings. There is only one ultimate being, and that counters the view of many. Not only that, it says there is a distinction between what is created and the one who is the creator. There is visible and invisible, and yet all of those things come from one God. He is distinct from his world, therefore pantheism. Views that stand behind all forms of animism, Hinduism, Buddhism, not biblical. Because there is God and then he created everything else. With that, there is God. Which means naturalism that does not even give space for an ultimate being is unbiblical. There is one supreme being over all things. His name, his title in this text is God. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, he is the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And as the generator of all things, he is rightly and necessary, worthy of our worship, this God. Not only is God supreme, He is the value setter. See if you can track with me where I'm going. There's a moment in the second or third new Star Wars movie where the emperor is sitting with Anakin and he's right on the bridge of going to the dark side. And Anakin says, well, isn't the dark side evil? And the emperor says, good and evil, it's all relative. It's a matter of perspective. If you have two eternally competing realities... From one perspective, you might call one good and the other evil, but ultimately, there is no basis upon which you can call one the good guys and the other side the dark side. You can't. It's called dualism. When there is a view that there are two eternally competing realities, you cannot declare one right and the other wrong. Those that believe there is not ultimate truth are forced into this view that communities determine what is right. And if you have a different perspective, I've got to let you have that perspective. And there's nothing that I can do to stop you from believing something different. Why? Because there's no ultimate basis for truth. 
Into that world, Genesis 1 comes, and what we have is Genesis 1-4. God saw the light. It was good. Verse 10, God saw the dry land earth, the waters that he had gathered and he called seas. He saw it and he said, good. Verse 12, God made the vegetation, the plants, yielding its seed, each according to its kind. God saw that it was good. Verse 18, God puts the luminaries into the heavens and he saw that it was good. Hear that. Don't jump over it. Because what it means is that there is a standard. There is the difference between something that is good and that is evil. And that means dualism is not possible in Scripture. There is only one supreme being overall. God becomes the standard of determining what is valuable. He's the one who determines things being good and things being evil. If there were two competing realities, say God over here and Satan over here, and both were ultimately eternal, both equal in power, you could not call one good and the other evil because there's no standard upon which to weigh the value. The problem in the garden, when when Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree they weren't supposed to take, the tree pertaining to the knowledge of good and evil, was that they were taking a right that was not theirs to determine what was good and what is evil. Mankind has not been given that right. None of us are the standard for determining value. God alone is that standard. But He is the standard. And it's because of that, hear this, this is so beautiful and so powerful, because God is the standard for good and evil, because there is a right and there is a wrong, and there's not two equally competing powers, when God says He is for us, and we're in the midst of pain, we can be confident that that supreme being is both able and willing to come and help us. He might be willing, but if there's an equally competing power... We can't be sure. If God got caught off guard when we entered into our trouble and he all of a sudden slipped off his throne for a second and Satan was there and actually thwarting God's ultimate purposes, then what hope do we have when we cry out to him in prayer that indeed he can show up and help us when we desperately need him? Who's to say that he couldn't get slipped off his throne one more time, or Satan catch him off the rears. No, that is not Genesis 1. The God of Genesis 1 is a supreme, all-encompassing being under whom is everything else. I, I alone am God. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And no one can take you out of my hand. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Or how about Isaiah 45? I create light and I create darkness. There is no God besides me. The weightiness of that is to know that Satan is not out on his own, but he is like a dog on a leash a vicious dog, a strong dog, 
But as we read in Job chapter 1, he can only go where God permits him because there is one supreme being and God says there is good and there is evil. And I declare my world good. He's the value setter. Righteous. Righteousness in God is his passion for right order. So there's the word, righteous, right order. Righteousness is creational, it's moral, it's God's driven desire. It drives God necessarily so because he's God that there's always right order in the universe. That is where he is supreme over all things. Pastor John has defined God's righteousness rightly so, and exegetically he's argued this straight out of the biblical text. God's, righteous, excuse me, God's righteousness is his passion for his own glory. That is, God's righteousness is his passion for right order, where everything underneath him recognizes that he's supreme. Now let's go look at the biblical text. Where do I see that here? In Genesis 2, at the very end of the creation week, this is what we read. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed this seventh day. He sets it apart. He, he makes it distinct. He makes it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. When we read that God rested, don't think that all of a sudden he got weary. Don't think that he is lazy. No, he's the king over all, from whom, through whom, and to whom everything exists. When I read this text, what I see is not the rest of laziness or weariness. I see a rest of sovereignty. That is, he's just created everything. Everything that exists is in his hand and it's all in right order. Righteousness. It's all in right order and everything in that creation is operating in peace with its creator just as it should be operating. And this is the direction to which all of Genesis points. All of Genesis 1 points. This is the climax. So, we have a move from what is formless and void, that is, uninhabitable and uninhabited. God moves from into the habitable and into the habited. So we have light. He creates a context wherein then in day four He can place the sun, moon, and stars. In day two, we have the sky distinguished from the waters below, which will be called the seas. He distinguishes them, and then it's in day five that he actually fills those spheres with the creatures that will rule them. The birds go into the sky, the, the, the fish go into the seas. We've got the dry land, and then the vegetation appears. Day three is cool. Watermelon, I love it. It's just there. And then... It's in day six that he creates the land animals that will fill that land and he brings forth mankind. Day six is cool, not just because we're there, but the moose is there. I love the moose. 
But all of this is heading somewhere. Humanity is set apart in day six, called to rule and subdue over all of the creatures that God creates. To what end? To this end. To the end of sovereign rest. That God puts us on earth as his representatives to oversee his world so that the world might in turn stay in relationship with its creator rightly. But those who are reading this text recognize that though God is still sovereign, the rest has been thwarted. But this is the goal. Eternity... When Christ returns is a re-consummation of sovereign rest, peace, shalom, righteousness realized in heaven and on earth. God seated on the throne with everything else subdued under his feet at perfect peace with its creator. This becomes not only a vision of what was, but a vision of what should be. So that when you and I find ourselves struggling with sin, the answer is, you're supposed to be imaging God, displaying God. To what end? That the glory of God may fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, may your name be shown holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Where? On earth! as it is in heaven. May sovereign rest come once again. It's striking in the Gospel of John. Pastor John's already shown it. I think it's John 5, where it says God's not resting. He's working. And the Son is working. What are they doing? They're on a mission to see the seventh day come again on a global scale. And Hebrews 3 and 4 says, here we are. He has come. And those who are weary and heavy laden... Come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and gentle of heart and you'll find rest for your souls and you've found it and now in a, in a, in a way that you taste it but only insofar as it makes us hunger for more and we're longing for the day when there will be no more tears and no more pain. That's the seventh day. We're longing for the seventh day to come and yet in the process we find ourselves in the midst of a work week where we're on mission. To what end? To the end of seeing the seventh day realized in our hearts and in our neighbors' hearts globally. You with me? God is the value setter. God is righteous. And finally, God is self-exalting. It's a striking feature of this text. In fact, I've found no other text in all the Bible that does what this text does. Jason hopped up on the stage. He opened up his Bible and he began to talk. Three sentences, only the first of which had an explicit subject. And because I didn't change any people, any actors in the sentences, you knew that when I said he opened his Bible, he began to talk, you knew who the participant was, the actor was, it was Jason. There's only one actor in Genesis 1. But instead of using pronouns, he did this, he said this, he made this. Instead, what we get 
is the use of the explicit subject on steroids. You can't read it, but I hope you can see red. God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. God saw the light. God separated the light. God said, let there be an expanse. God made the expanse. God called the heavens heaven, called the expanse heaven. God said, let the waters be separated. God called the dry land earth. God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God saw that it was good. God said, let there be lights. Who else? It's God. And this text is going out of its way. The author of Genesis wants us to see this text as radically God-absorbed. Why? So that when we see the light, God did that. When we enjoy the watermelon, God did that. When we're sitting in our canoe with our fishing pole and out comes the big bull, God did that. Everything in this world that you and I are sniffing and tasting and enjoying is not only from God, this text says God, 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 in order to help awaken within the hearts of people reading this text who are a bunch of sinners, who have seen parents not take God seriously, that this is a world about God. That's why we pray at supper time. That's why we pray when we tuck our kids into bed and when we get in the car to go to church, we just offer this to the Lord. Because this is a world that's supposed to be about Him. Why every single class that I open up, I want to start in prayer. Lord, help us and meet us in this hour. We cannot receive unless You give. So open our eyes that we may behold beautiful things and move our hearts to be different kinds of people. We pray that because this is about God. We say amen, as Paul says, We're able to say amen because every promise is yes in Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because God can give us nothing positive but through Him. Now, there's lots of good things that come to lots of evil people who are not blood-bought. And ultimately, what they receive will be exhibit A against them that they failed to honor God and they failed to thank God when judgment day comes. God did it. God said it. God made it. God, God, God. God's the ultimate author. He's the ultimate mover in Genesis 1. This is his world. And he rightly, because he's God, says it's about me. So you're wondering how to live and not die. What it means to live in this place. And you begin to See this text. It's opened up for you. And you begin to see a standard upon which you're supposed to consider how have I been perceiving reality? How am I doing about thinking about God this way? As the one from whom, through whom, and to whom is everything. All right. Humans as dependent imagers. Humans are to display the greatness of God. Have you ever considered the idea of an image? Look with me at 1, 26 through 28. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the livestock and over the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Day six gains focus in this chapter because, one, it has the longest speeches of God. Day six has longer speeches than any other day. And so it draws attention to that day. God's talking the most in day six. Also, any of you have a New American Standard? Anybody have it with you? An open New American Standard? Okay. I want you, I'm going to read some verses in the ESV, and all of you can follow along in the ESV, and then he's going to read how it's properly translated in the New American Standard. Okay? All right. Let me see if I can do this. Let me turn in my notes. All right. Here's the ESV. Verse... And there was evening and there was morning the first day. What does it say in the New American Standard? Good and loud. Careful. Is yours the New American Standard? Oh, and NIV, they do it like the ESV. Let's go New American Standard. Okay, so at the end it says, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Now jump down to verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now jump down to 13. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Verse 23, and there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. And finally, in verse 31, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. It's the only day that has an explicit definite article. All the rest are a first, a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, the sixth day. It just, it's another literary tool to draw attention here. Everything else is created according to its kinds. Mankind is made in God's image. And yet as soon as we find ourselves, and that's why we open up the text, we're wondering, how do I live and not die like all those around me? What is God calling me to? All of a sudden, as soon as we find ourselves, we're not allowed to look at ourselves long because we are made in the image of God. It's not the image of God. No, the point of an image was always to direct attention off of itself to remind the reader of someone else. And right here, humanity's purpose, as defined, is to display the greatness of God. Do your co-workers see God when they see you? How about your neighbors? Do they know that God is on the throne of your life? Is He there? How is it known? Are you imaging Him? This is what I think Paul means in Romans 3.23, falling short of the glory of God. It's failing to fulfill your purpose in displaying His glory. Imagers of God. Humans do this. This is where I believe human value comes. This is why we fight for life and not death. Because humans have an an amazing, unique capacity and responsibility. 
to show the greatness of God, to reflect and resemble and represent God. Not only that, humans are complementary in nature. Look with me at verse, verses 26 through 28. So God made man in his own image. Verse 27, he created the male and female. Both in the image of God. Verse 28, he calls them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Hear the equality in this text. Men and women, male and female, both created in the image of God. Both with the responsibility to display the greatness of God. Both with an equal opportunity to relate to God. Both with an equal call to rule. Isn't that striking? Look at verse 28. God blessed them. Who's the them? Male and female. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and have dominion. Not just men, men and women side by side, having dominion over the earth. Equal in responsibility to image God in ever-increasing ways on a global scale. Fill the earth. With what? With my image. We read verse 28 in light of 26 and 27. Lots of equality and yet also distinction. Notice the distinction. There is male and there's female in Genesis 1. And not only that, they have this distinct role in filling the earth with God's image. At at least that's how it usually works. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's not going to happen in the same way. In fact, they need each other to see that come about. Humanity as missional. Here's where I connect. Be imagers of God and fill the earth. Multiply and subdue it. This can't be... I'm going to fly through this. There we go. This can't be... This has to be about God. Filling the earth has to be understood in relation to mankind's capacity to display God. This is about global passion to see the supremacy of God enjoyed everywhere into the next generation. This is who we are. It's it's what drives us and to the level in which we are committed to spread a passion for God's supremacy. That's the idea of filling the earth. Not only now, but the readers are reading this years after this and they have the same responsibility. Israel's purpose was to operate as a kingdom of priests or in the whole cursed world. The people would come to Israel to meet God. And this is the ultimate mission of the church. Because a failure to glorify God results in eternal ruin, the wages of sin is death, humans must be passionate about God's exaltation, God's kingdom, representing God on a global scale. And in Christ, 
all of a sudden as we're changed from glory to glory, from one image of his likeness to a greater image of his likeness, this is beginning to be accomplished. But the mission is clear. Take God out. Let me say one last point because I realize we're not going to make it all the way through. Where do you see dependency in this text? That not only is everything from God and for God, but everything is through God. Where do you see that in Genesis 1? It's my last point. Humans are dependent. Where do you see the dependency? God's the one who gives all these things. And if you're the reader you can assume he's given you the same life he gave Adam and Eve at the beginning. Not only the giving of the life, but the provision for meeting it. Where do you see provision in the text? Verse 29. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. For you and the beasts of the earth, the birds of the heavens, everything that creeps... I've given food. So when you see the apple or enjoy the pizza, it's from God. But I want to push us even further than that and see humans as dependent. Look at verse 28 with me. The way that the text is structured suggests to me that God is not doing two things in Genesis 28, blessing and saying, but rather that he's doing one thing, saying a blessing. It's very clear that what he gives is a commission. Fill the earth, that's a command. Multiply, that's a command. Subdue it, that's a command. Have dominion, that's a command. And the people who are hearing this, reading this text are recognizing their own failure and desperate need to look outside of themselves because they haven't been doing what they've been called to do. How are you doing? Imaging God. But the fact that the commission is couched in a blessing is very, very striking and hopeful. Blessings are like prayers in that they're both dependent on God to fully accomplish. Jesus called the children up to himself and he blessed them. The priest would bless Israel. Pastor Dan often ends services with his hands wide and gives we as a, us as a congregation a blessing. The difference between a blessing and a prayer is this. When I pray, I look at God on behalf of you so that God, may you do this for them. But a blessing is different because I'm not talking to God, I'm actually talking to you. I say, may you experience this from Him. So blessings, I'm talking to the people. Prayers, I'm offering to God. But both are equally dependent for God to fulfill. And God couches His mission of bringing his image to the ends of the earth in a blessing. He couches your overcoming, your struggle with anger, your challenges with lust, impurity, laziness, 
All the areas in your life where you're not imaging God, he says, image me, and then he couches it in a blessing. What does that suggest? What was the similarity between prayer and blessing? Pardon? Dependence. So if you find yourself reading Genesis 1 and you find yourself like all the other readers, a sinner who's struggling to fulfill your mission of speaking rightly and thinking rightly and acting rightly in a way that displays that God is the king of your life, the answer is not self-motivation. The answer is greater dependence on a God who alone can fulfill what He commands. And it gives us hope that when great tribulation comes upon the church, it's God who is supreme over all things who has said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and it will happen. When we find ourselves broken under the weightiness of guilt or under the weightiness of pain, and the curse is pressing in on us, we can trust a God who is big enough to give us all that we need all the time. The very prayer is the act of imaging. It, it moves the spotlight off of me and says, God, 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 you are my helper. You are my savior. You are my righteousness. You are my hope. You are the one alone who can satisfy my broken soul. That's imaging God. That's showing God is great. That's what he's looking for. We magnify God. We show his greatness, not like a telescope, sorry, not like a microscope takes a dust mite and makes it look massive on an allergy clinic wall. Ugh! It's crawling all over your pillows. No, we magnify God like a telescope takes a massively distant moon that looks small in human perspective and shows that more for its greatness. Image God. And trust Him. Fall on your knees and say, God, I can't do it. I can't do it. And He says, that's where I want you. Without faith, it's impossible to please me. But with faith, all things, all things are possible. Humans are to display God's greatness. Humans are complementary in nature. Humans are missional by design. And humans are dependent on God to fulfill that mission. All this from Genesis 1. And we haven't considered where we are and what human responsibility is aligned with that. But we are done for today. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, how much we need you to act in and through us. And we know this is only possible because there was one who imaged you perfectly and rightly, fully dependent on his Father's will. And you look at us through his perfect righteousness, the perfect display of right order, the perfect understanding of who is supreme. Jesus had it, and we don't, but we rely on him. And you say, that's enough. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight to the glory of Jesus for the good of your global mission. 
move us from where we are, complacent, comfortable, and move us into massive surrender and dependence for your ultimate good, for the glory of your name through the nations. Take people who are fearful and make them bold. Take those who are lazy and make them disciplined. Take those who have no self-control over their tongue and make them guarded and quick listeners. Fill us with love that shows that you matter in our lives. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies through Covenant for His Glory in Christ.